All right, once you've met someone, you can go ahead and take a seat. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to The Exchange. So glad you're here. Uh, my name is Josiah. If you're new, I would love to meet you after and just say what's up, but we're so glad you're here. Uh, let's do this. If you need a Bible, turn to Philippians chapter 1. Raise your hand, and then uh, we'll get you a Bible, and also turn to Philippians chapter 1. All right, Philippians chapter 1. We're flying through this book. It's our third week, and we're in verse 12. It is great. But Philippians chapter 1, to be honest, uh, I wasn't sure if I was going to be here this morning with you guys. Um, our baby girls do really any day now. So excited for that. Um, actually, my son, when my wife was this far in her pregnancy, her son was already born at this point. So it really is any day now. So I was studying this week. I'm like, I'm studying, but what if it's not? I don't know. Um, Hopefully I won't be here next week. We'd love to have the baby. She would love, I know my wife would love to have the baby this week. Um, not me, but her. Uh, next Sunday is our 11-year anniversary too, so it'd be so cool if it happened before that so we could just have a different day. Yeah, it's exciting. Um, hey, this is actually a, a pretty full Sunday, uh, not because it's the Super Bowl by any means, but this is a full Sunday here at our church, so let me actually explain two things happening, all right? So please don't miss this. So excited for today. Today is, is what we're doing called Connect Sunday. So here's what that means. If you're new or newer to the church, let's say you've been here for a month or two, and you're like, I don't really know people yet, or I've heard about opportunities to serve or get involved in a group, and I'd love to hear more. You know, what does this church believe? What are you guys all about? We're going to actually, after service, right when service is over, go into the middle school room, which is like right when you exit this building. It's that building straight in front of you. Um, we're going to have some food, some snacks. You can meet some key leaders. It'll take 10 minutes for two, three minutes, we'll talk about the church, and then we'll let you guys have some food, meet each other, talk. You can sign up for groups or just meet whoever. We'd love for you guys to be a part of that. So if you're new, this is for you. But also today, just the way it worked out, I know we have two things going on today. Um, right when service is over, we're going to put a 15-minute clock up here, and we're going to actually have a meeting in 15 minutes after service for a South Florida missions trip. Now, I'm so excited for this. Um, we, our church, is partnering with West Pines Community Church, and we're going to do like a missions trip weekend in Deerfield Beach at the end of March. So the cool thing for us is before we take an international missions trip, which we are at the end of March with Haiti, right before our first international trip is our first missions trip in our own backyard. Um, we are treating this as if it's a missions trip but just here locally. So this is perfect for families. We're going to have things for even kids to do to pack Easter eggs for an outreach we're going to do to pack gift baskets for teachers at the school. Um, we're going to go into the community and just, you know, love on them, do a free car wash. So we'd love for you guys to just be a part of this meeting. You can hear more right after service um, in this room. All right? It's our first mission trip in a sense. Like we're treating it as a mission trip, but locally. Uh, so, so excited for that. Um, so yeah, let's do this. Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, we're in verse 12 through 18 today. Um, let me explain in case you are new or maybe you've missed a week or just to review. The author of Philippians is a guy named Paul. Um, Paul wrote this epistle from prison while being chained to a soldier 24 hours a day. We'll talk about that. Paul was once an enemy of Jesus, but now he's Jesus' biggest advocate. Paul is Jesus' really biggest, you could say, ambassador in the early church. Just planting churches, it seems, wherever he's going. And the, the theme primarily of Philippians, as maybe you know, is just a joy that is centered on Jesus. A joy that is centered on Jesus. Listen, joy, as we talked about, is not the absence of trouble, but the presence of something greater. And please hear that. Joy is not the absence of trouble, but the presence of really someone greater, and that's Jesus. You see, Paul is saying in this epistle, really throughout it in different ways, what happens to you does not have to control you. 
What happens to you does not have to control you. And Paul is talking about a joy that is centered on Jesus. And so this is a book, I honestly, we've been praying for our church in this year. Um, we feel like it fits well with just some things God wants to do within our, our church community. Uh, the main theme, you could say, of Philipp- Philippians is this idea of they are a colony of Rome. He actually says, Paul says to them, you're not really a colony of Rome, you're a colony of heaven. You're citizens of heaven. And I s- shared this last week because you go on, I want you to know like, the theme of this. Rome or Philippi's goal, Philippi, the city of Philippi's goal was to bring Rome to that city. Let's bring Roman culture, Roman architecture, Roman language, Roman law, Roman everything, Roman justice system. We're bringing Rome to Philippi. And Paul is saying, no, bring heaven to Philippi. You're not just Roman citizens. This was very unique. It was unique to be a Roman citizen outside of Rome in a sense. There are certain colonies. Philippi was one of them. And Paul is saying, more importantly though, you're a citizen of heaven. You're a colony of heaven. Bring heaven's kingdom to earth. Bring the culture of heaven to earth. Bring the culture of God's love and God's grace. Bring that to earth. You're an ambassador for God's kingdom on earth. We're a citizen of heaven. And for our church, my hope is this, that wherever you go throughout the week, your job, your work, your school, that you have that mindset is, I'm not just like an American citizen first and foremost. I am a citizen of heaven. And I'm here to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. Amen? That is our hope. How do we bring heaven to earth? How do we be an ambassador and a citizen of heaven wherever we go? And this is really Paul's theme and heartbeat. I've mentioned this before, and I think it's just, we'll throw up the little map for you so you can know, because sometimes we talk about like these different cities, and you're like, where is that? Uh, Philippi was really a city in, in the area of Macedonia or, or Greece. This is when the gospel went west. This is the first church plant on the continent of Europe. This is the first church plant that started making the gospel go west, and that's a big deal. People who study this epistle and study the book of Acts and just study history say when Paul went west, when he went into Europe, it forever changed European history, Western history, American history, because the gospel started advancing and going west. And here we are today in South Florida, celebrating Jesus, looking to Jesus. The gospel went west. It also went into east. It also went to Asia Minor, Minor and Turkey. It went both ways. But this was the church plant where the gospel started going west. And forever, this book changes our history today. So, as we're going to talk through this, bringing heaven to earth and what that looks like, Paul is saying, I will do whatever it takes even if, I ends up, even if I end up being in chains. Even if I end up in prison, being beaten, suffering, I will do whatever it takes to bring God's heaven to earth. And so we're going to read in Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. Let's just read this as a whole. And really the main thought today and the topic today you could say is when suffering is worth it. When suffering is worth it. When is suffering really worth it? Let's read Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. Paul writes, <clears throat> But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard, the praetorium, and to all the rest, that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ, even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. When suffering is worth it. Let's pray, and we'll look at this more in depth. Father, we do, um, even as we just sung earlier, 
our desire is to seek your face. Lord, our desire is not to seek your hand and what you can do for us, but to seek your face. God, I do ask for myself, everyone in this room, that as just you even told us, God, that your, your face would shine upon us. God, that your, your grace would be so clearly seen here. God, that the way you revealed yourself to Moses is you are full of compassion, merciful. Jesus, I just ask that you'd speak to us, that you'd be in this place, God. I know a lot of us are suffering in different ways, whether it's physically or emotionally or mentally or spiritually. God, I just ask that you would um, reveal to us what it is you want to reveal when it comes to suffering and suffering well and doing it for you and for the furtherance of the gospel. In your wonderful name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Was it worth it? Have you ever been asked that question? Has someone ever looked at you after you did something that probably wasn't a good idea? Like, Yo, was it worth it? Uh, I've been asked that question quite a, a bit of times in my life. Um, usually, I feel like this question is asked after like a dad who's not very flexible tries to do something that requires flexibility, and he's like, was it worth it? No. Um, I don't know what's wrong with the world today. I'm, prob- I'm part of the problem, but um, I think we love those, those fail videos. I don't know if anyone's ever sent you a fail video, or you've seen a video, just a compilation of people trying to do things they definitely should not be trying to do, and they're just failing epically, and for some reason, there's something that creepy within us. We like, take joy in people's failing. <laughs> I'm so glad he hit his face on that pole. We're like, why would we? We're like terrible. We're terrible people. I'm, I'm part of that. Um, but there's something about that where you're looking. It's mostly, it's mostly men. I've ever realized it's mostly like dads who are trying to prove something they shouldn't be trying to prove. It's like, I'm gonna jump off my, my roof into this pool. And they slip and fall on the ground, break both their legs. You're like, mm, probably shouldn't have done that. Um, but usually after something like that, someone will ask, hey, was it worth it? And unless they're crazy, for the most part, the answer is no. No, the two years of rehab is not, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. Some people say yes. Um, I think if we were to look at Paul and say, Paul, you're suffering, you're in chains, being in jail, was it worth it? And Paul would say, absolutely, it was worth it. Paul, was it really worth being beaten all those times, being homeless, being sick, being shipwrecked? I mean, being thrown in prison falsely, was it worth it? And he, with a smile, he'd be like, yes, it was worth it. You see, we learn a lot from the way Paul faced um, hardships or trials. We learn a lot from the way Paul faced suffering. I mean, the way Paul set his face towards suffering for the gospel is unlike anyone I feel like we've ever looked at church history or studied. There was this unique contentment and joy and peace in Paul's suffering if it furthered the gospel. And I think we have a lot to learn from when it comes to setbacks. Guys, our suffering might not always be for the gospel. It might. It might be at work. You're ostracized a little bit. It might be just social things that people kind of, oh, but you're a Christian. There might be some sort of suffering when it comes to the gospel. But regardless, all of us suffer to some extent. And is our suffering, how is it redeemable? How is it something where I might not be suffering in this way, I might be in a different way. Maybe it is through cancer. Maybe it is through unemployment. Whatever your suffering might look like, how is it redeemable? How is it something where you can say, hey, it's worth it though? How do we get to that place where we can look at our suffering and say, but you know what? It's worth it. You know, it's interesting. I, I, maybe you've seen this too. Um, we've been around a lot of people who suffered and suffered immensely. And there's really kind of two responses. A lot of times you can see people who've, who've gone, just gone through it. Is if you just spend enough time with them, eventually you're going to hear the cynicism come out. You're going to hear the bitterness towards God come out. You might hear that hatred. And where was God when this happened? And you might kind of sense that and hear that. Other times I've been around people who've suffered terribly. And there's this unique kindness and gentleness to them. There's this unique hope that they have. I mean, they've gone through the ringer. They've lost a spouse. They've lost a child. And yet there's this unique there's this unique peace they have that does not make sense. And they're some of the nicest, kindest people. And, and how does it happen? How do two Christians go through something catastrophic? One becomes very bitter, 
and just one becomes very just in love with Jesus more so. Like, how, does it, how do we face this? How do we approach this? What's the mindset? And, and we're not going to get into this part too much today, but I want you to consider this. We're going to talk about this later in Philippians. Paul talks a lot about the mind. If you haven't noticed, and we'll see it more, he's going to talk about, let this mind be in you. Have this mind. He's, he's going to talk a lot about the mind and the mindset, because that really does determine a lot of our joy. But we'll talk about that later more. But let's talk about suffering. When it comes to suffering, how is it ever worth it? And really, again, consider this for yourself, because I have no idea what this might look like. I mean, you might be suffering in, in a unique way right now, where I or maybe no one can relate to you, but, but who can? We know the Lord can. And he wants to, I think, speak to you, minister to you in a way. So let's look at specifically three thoughts that is—this is, is not going to be exhaustive by any means. I mean, th- we're not going to cover everything when it comes to suffering and, and the theology of suffering. I, I wish we could do that this morning. We definitely would not have enough time. But here's just three thoughts from our text today when suffering is worth it. Here's the first th- thought Paul says. It's worth it if it furthers the gospel— he says it's worth it if it emboldens others, and it's worth it if Christ is preached. So let's like kind of walk through this. When is suffering really worth it? First point, it's worth it if it furthers the gospel. Look again at verse 12, would you? Verse 12, he says, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. All right, think about um, the way this church started. We said this two weeks ago. In Acts chapter 16, Paul's in the city of Philippi. The Holy Spirit says, go to Philippi. Don't go into the east. Don't go into Asia. Go to Philippi. He goes to Philippi, and he's there, and he meets a woman down by the river, and then he starts preaching the gospel to this, to just a multitude of people. This little girl gets saved out of, of sorcery and witchcraft. The people are mad at him. They throw him in prison. Paul's in prison with Silas. It's midnight. At midnight, they start singing hymns, and people are listening to them singing hymns, and there's a giant earthquake. The doors are open in the prison cell. The guard wakes up, sees that the the doors are open, and he realizes, oh no, or he thinks to himself, everyone's gone, everyone left. And in his mind, he goes, I need, I'm going to die for this. Prisoners have been set free. So he pulls out a sword to take his own life, and Paul says, don't take your life. He goes, we have not left. Everyone's accountable for it. Everyone's here. And the prisoner, if you guys remember, the jailer asked Paul, he says, what must I do to be saved? What a beautiful question. What must I do to be saved? And he says, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And it's so simple. Now, that's how the church started. Think about verse 12. He goes, the things that have happened to me have furthered the gospel. Things I would never imagine have actually furthered the gospel. So here's my question really quick. What has happened to Paul? Not just Acts 16, but what has happened to Paul? There's a couple texts, and we're just going to kind of throw them up here so you can just read in like a generic sense all that Paul's walked through. First text is 1 Corinthians 4. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 9. Just listen to Paul's like testimony in this. Paul says, for I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last, as men condemned to death. He says, why? For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, the offscoring of all things until now. Who wants to join this movement? Right? Paul's like, we are hungry. We're thirsty. We're beaten. We're dishonored. We're persecuted. People are, are tearing apart our name, our reputation. They're spreading rumors about us. He goes on to say, we are the filth of the world. <laughs> that is a unique description. And he goes, because this is what God has for us. And he embraces it welcomely, like, with open arms. 
He just embraces it fully. You see, Paul goes, want to know what I've been through? He goes, but you know what? It's further the gospel. I want to hear one more text, and I hope this does relate and speak to many of you, myself included this week. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Here's what Paul says another time about his, his testimony. He says, but in all things, 2 Corinthians 6, he says, but in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God in much patience, in tribulations, in needs, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings, by purity, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold Behold, we live as chastened yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. Paul's like, this is what I've gone through. I've been beaten. I've been imprisoned. I've gone through just fastings. I think the worst part to me is just like the idea of just saying not having food, like being hungry. I'm like, oh no, that'd be the worst part, just being hungry. He's like, all this I've gone through for the gospel. And here, here's why I'm sharing this. Paul says, my suffering is worth it in verse 12. Why? Because it furthered the gospel. Actually, if you look at verse 13, if you would read that one time, more time, he says that it became evidence to the whole palace guard. He goes, my suffering has been made to, known to the whole palace guard. He goes, so that it's now advanced, that my chains, uh, and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. Paul is literally saying this gospel message has advanced like an army to an army. That literally this whole army, this whole palace guard, this whole praetorium got to see my persecution. Now let me just kind of give you some context. Um, the palace guard was called the praetorium. It was made up specifically of like nine co- cohorts of these Roman soldiers. In each cohort, there was a thousand men. So it was 9,000 men around the city of Rome that were, in a sense, Caesar's like bodyguards. These 9,000 men were around the city, near Caesar, near his household, really ultimately to protect him. Uh, it was kind of like the local army for the local government. And Paul's like, I'm in chains, not just to like, you know, some jailer, but to the praetorium, to the whole palace guard, to Caesar's men I'm in chains to. Now, I do want you to think about this because in many ways we can look on and say, man, Paul was chained to these soldiers, but you kind of look and say, no, the soldiers were chained to Paul. I mean, think about the greatest evangelist in the world <laughs> is chained to a different guard every four to six hours. I mean, you think about that, like, like next shift, like, hey, man, this is a rough one. I mean, Paul went off on me today about the gospel. You know, I, I do think about, like, them going up to Paul, and like, hey, so why are you, like, why are we watching, like, what are you in here for, murder, insurrect, what do you, what would you do? He's like, let me tell you what I did. I'm preaching the gospel. You want to know the gospel? You have gospel messengers. They tell other people that there's a new serial. Well, I'm, I'm here to tell you that there's a new king. His name is Jesus. He's the king of kings and lord of lords, and he's God in the flesh. And he came to take away the sin of the world and die for our sins. And maybe you remember, but some of your buddies actually crucified him over in Jerusalem. But guess what? He's risen, and he rose on the third day, and there's a movement happening where people are following King Jesus. And like, oh, man, take it easy. Like, you do wonder, like, Paul's just passion and enthusiasm being chained to these soldiers, and them hearing about the gospel, hearing the gospel, and he's saying the gospel is being made known to, pal- to Caesar's men. It's, it's spreading, and it's spreading quickly. See, I, I love that Paul did not take self-pity. He did not have self-pity on himself. God, like, I'm one of your men. Why am I in prison? I mean, you think about Paul. Listen, Paul was designed to preach the gospel and plant churches. So think about this. He's in prison. It's like having a great athlete, like, with a broken leg on the bench. You're like, why would you do that? God, why would you take your star athlete and put him on the bench? Like, what is up with that? Paul was given opportunities he probably never would have been given. 
if it wasn't for being thrown in prison. If you guys ever read the book of Acts all the way through, Paul constantly talks about how he wants to go to Rome. He wants to go to Rome. You know how he ends up going to Rome? In chains. Probably not the way he expected. Probably not how he wanted. And Paul's not having like this self, like this pity party. Going, woe is me. I can't believe me. God's messenger is in prison. Here's what I love. A guy named Oswald Chambers said, said this about this text and about just this concept. He said, God can crush me, exalt me, or do anything he chooses. He simply asked me to have absolute faith in him and his goodness. Self-pity, he says. Self-pity is of the devil. And I, if I wallow in it, I cannot be used by God for his purposes in the world. I think so often we can like wallow in our sorrow and our self-pity and you're missing out you're missing out on the growth that can take place personally. You're missing out on the advancement just because we want to have like a pity party for ourselves. Paul's like, I'm not going to do that. See, Paul knew that this ugliness that was happened to him. Like, let's talk through this. What happened to Paul, we also have to acknowledge is, is in a sense, it's, it's evil. It's, it's men who are corrupt, who are filled with sin, doing things unrighteously, throwing him in prison without cause. I mean, it's, it's evil. And yet Paul's not going... Woe is me, he's saying, God, this is when God works the best. See, I want you to think about, you guys, this is the story of the Bible, is it not? It's someone suffering unjustly and God doing a redemptive work. I mean, remember Joseph? Joseph, the book of Genesis. Remember Joseph has this dream, he's going to be like this ruler, this leader of his brothers, his family. His brothers hate him for it. They end up, you know, faking his death, throwing him in, in prison. They sell him as a slave. Joseph is now a slave in this guy's house, in Potiphar's house. He becomes like the highest slave in his house. He's now like overseeing his, his master's land and everything he owns. He gets accused of rape. He's thrown in prison again. While he's in prison, he meets a, a butler and he, he meets just different people in prison. He starts prophesying and telling them about their dreams, what it means. Somehow this message gets back to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh goes, there's an interpreter of dreams? Send him to me. I have a dream. He interprets Pharaoh's dream. What happens? Joseph becomes the prime minister of Egypt, right? I mean, he becomes like the, se- the second most, the second leader in all of Egypt, the most powerful like, nation or empire at that time. He becomes second in command. And if you guys remember, there's this interaction at the, in, the, in the book of Genesis between Joseph and his brothers. Imagine Joseph's brothers, who haven't seen him in years, are now face to face with him. They now see him. They don't know it's him. They can't even recognize him. Joseph eventually reveals, hey, it's me, your brother, the one you sold to slavery. I'm the prime minister of Egypt, right? And here's what Joseph says in Genesis 50, verse 20. Listen to this. He says to his brothers, but as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. The story of Joseph was he, he interpreted Pharaoh's dream. There'll be seven years of famine, seven years of prosperity, take advantage of these seven years of prosperity, put, store it away so we can save people's lives. Here's the thing. Joseph had the right mindset. He goes, I've suffered. God has allowed me to go through what I went through so that many could be saved. You meant to do something for evil, but God has used it for good. I mean, the story of the Bible is there's evil and God comes into that evil himself, cuts into it, and brings redemption. And he brings redemption out of evil moments and evil things all the time. And let's just, let's just acknowledge this, though. There are evil things that happen and still happen. Abuse is evil. Rape is evil. Divorce is evil. Things that people have experienced and gone through. I mean, painful, painful things. And I want you to see that this is where God works the best and says, let me get into it and let me redeem it. You know, Paul would l- later write a verse we all know very well. Romans eight twenty eight. Paul would say, for we know... And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. Paul would later look at this moment and say, we know, we know. 
Here's what we do, Christians. Can we throw that verse up and just look at it? We know all things work together for good, period. We kind of stop there. Isn't that great? We're like, yeah, it's great. All things are great. No, for those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. To those who say, God, my life, my brokenness, my shame, the things I've done, the things others have done to me, I give to you. I'm, I'm giving my life to you. It, whatever it is, the mess it is, the brokenness it is, I'm giving it to you. And God's like, yes, I'm going to work this for good for my purpose. You love me. I'm going to do something with this. I, I think we, I so, so often underestimate how God can take those fragile parts of my life that I think are unusable and make them usable. Those things in my life that I'm like ashamed of or maybe you've walked through or others have done to you or done to me and you go, this is hard. I, I don't know what to do with this. And God's like, this is what I do. I like to take difficult things and use them for good to those who love me, to those who are called according to my purpose. There's just something about this story where Paul, Paul, can I even just share this? It's not as if Paul has the whole picture. I don't know if Paul's looking at the Praetorium Guard and going, you know, I'm in prison unjustly, and I don't know if he sees the whole picture. Maybe he's thinking, yeah, some of these guys are getting saved, but is this really where it goes? I mean, but he's just trusting in what he's, he knows about God. He's just trusting. I, I know that God's going to work this out. The gospel's been advanced. This is getting back to Caesar. I mean, Paul has this hope that is so unique. And see, here's my, my hope, I guess, or question for us, is do we view our suffering as a way to further the gospel? I mean, if you really do think about it, and just really think about your own suffering, it's different. Some of you might be financial. It really could be emotional. It could be, it could be um, mental. It could be some other relationship issue. But do you really have this mindset that God will use this pain, God will use this suffering to further the gospel? See, Paul did not have this self-pity party. Paul's looking on and saying, God, I know that this is going to further the gospel. I'm allowing it. He was very proactive in it. I would say, allow God to use your suffering to further the gospel. And not only that, we'll, we'll move on. But Paul eventually says in verse 14, it, it's empowering other people. My suffering is actually giving other people passion for the gospel. Look at verse 14. Verse 14, it says, And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Number two, it's worth it if it emboldens others. Now, when I told my wife this word emboldens, she's like, is that a word? Like, you made that up. Don't use that word. People don't know what that word means. And I'm like, oh gosh, now I'm worried. All right, so emboldens means this. Emboldens means give someone the courage or confidence to do something or to behave in a certain way. Your actions are giving someone else confidence to be bold in just a certain way. A guy named John Piper said this. I thought it was so good. He goes, God, listen, God spurs the church into missionary service by the suffering she endures. Therefore, we must not judge too quickly the apparent setbacks and tactical defeats of the church. So often we might look at something and go, that's a defeat. The church lost. The church lost that. The world's going to look down on the church now. And what we might view as a defeat is God is getting ready for, for victory. And he's saying that might, it might appear to be a setback, but it's not. So often God uses this suffering to spur about a new work. Can I tell you something really unique about Paul in this moment? And just think through this with me. Paul used to be the one who wreaked havoc on the church, and the church would grow. Now havoc's, havoc's being wreaked on him in a sense, and now the church is growing that way. Like I want you to actually think this, or I'll throw the verse up here. It's really interesting. It's Acts chapter 8. Before Paul was Paul, who was he? Saul. Right, in Acts chapter 8, listen to this verse, verse 3. <clears throat> it says, as for Saul, so Paul, he made havoc on the church, of the church, entering every house, and he was dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Our guy who wrote Philippians right here. And it says, and it says this in Acts chapter 8, verse 4. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Paul was a person who would just wreak havoc everywhere he went. Like there's a Christian thrown in prison, dragging them out of homes. And now here's Paul. He used to 
caused persecution for the gospel is now being persecuted for the gospel, and now the gospel is spreading that way. Whether he was persecuting Christians and spreading the gospel, whether he's being persecuted and spreading the gospel, God's like, I'm going to spread the gospel regardless, Paul. <laughs> Before you get saved, you're just going to spread the gospel. When you get saved, you're going to spread the gospel regardless. You can't stop this work that I'm doing. You can't stop it. See, and I want you to see this. There's something about someone suffering and just emboldening, emboldening others. I don't know if you've ever seen this or watched this firsthand. I don't know if you have a family member or friend who's suffering greatly. You know, it's interesting. If you look at, like, even just church history or different movements, maybe you guys remember, like, recently, you could say in the 1950s, somewhat recent, maybe you've heard of the Aka Five. You heard about Jim Elliott, Nate Saint. They go to Ecuador. They go to the Aka Indians. They would go to this tribe that's never heard the gospel. And they have an airplane, and they're flying over this little tribe. They're dropping gifts, and they're dropping presents to this little tribe, and they're trying to make contact with them over time and just give them gifts, give them some stuff. If you guys remember, one day they're by the river. Essentially, some <laughs> warriors come out from the tribe, spear all five men to death. I mean, all these guys are there to share the gospel. They even have a gun on them, but they never used it at them. They didn't kill anyone. They take anyone's life. But these guys suffer at the hands of these men that they're there to love and serve and, and minister to. Now, the story doesn't end there, obviously. A guy named Jim Elliott, his wife, Elizabeth Elliott, goes back years later with Nate Saint's sister. They go back to the Indians, and they share the gospel, and many of those tribe members get saved. Actually, people who helped kill the husband and brother got saved. And you look at that movement, and, and these five guys came from Wheaton College. That just spurred on a new missionary movement. I mean, Wheaton College started sending out all these missionaries everywhere during that time. People started giving missions like they never gave before. Here, here's what I want you to hear and see. Someone's suffering for the gospel, it only furthers the gospel. I mean, time and time again, those who are persecuted, killed, suffer, it just kind of does something with people. Like, we've got to do something. We've got to be part of this. Let me just put it this way. Faith births faith. When you see great steps of faith, it only births faith. Can I tell you, when we were praying about even just leaving and, and doing this church plant, there was a lot of fear. During that time, I honestly started listening to kind of like bi uh, biographies of individuals, men and women who took these steps of faith. I was trying to read about their lives. I was trying to listen to messages on faith because there's something about me hearing what other people, I'm not the first person, you're not the first person who's ever taken a risk for God. We got to keep that in mind. There's so many men and women before us who've taken great risks for God, way greater than I've ever taken. And God has been so faithful time and time again to only further his name and further the kingdom. And there's something about me listening to these stories of these men and women throughout history who've, who've taken risk for God, and I say, okay, God, it's my turn. And there's something about you sitting here today and God saying, okay, it's your turn. Take a risk for me. Maybe God is calling you to something you have no desire to do. <laughs> you're very uncomfortable. For some of you, you know, you, you're like, you're the peacock, you love to be around, like, oh, I love to talk to people. Other, you're like, don't talk to me, I don't want to see you. And God's like, go serve. You're like, serve? How dare you, God? Not me, someone else. Or it's like, go be part of a group and meet people. Like, oh, I don't know. Maybe it's as simple as just, hey, you need to be part of like a mission trip, the local mission trip. Maybe you need to go to Haiti with the church. Maybe, maybe there's just something God's doing and you're like, I don't know. But I'm saying faith births faith. So often you see someone step out and risk something. They get, in their, they get out of their comfort zone and you see that begin to lead others to get out of their comfort zone. And just begins to grow that way and multiply that way. And I love this about the gospel. I love that when people take risks for the gospel, that other people say, I want in. I want to take a risk. I have no idea. I think God wants to do some things within this church community that there might be people sitting right now in this crowd that will be, will be sending out to church plant in five, ten years. Maybe sending to a different country to church plant. My point is we don't know what the Lord's doing, but he's doing something, and I want to be part of it. And I want you to be part of it. You know, and it's not just suffering. It, can I tell you, this can take so many different forms. So, for example, uh, my mother-in-law right now, has, she has brain, liver, and lung cancer. All right, she's been battling it for like four years. And she has a friend who got diagnosed with cancer on the same time. A friend we knew, and um, I knew his like, kids growing up, he's the same age as her. 
So they're both going to oncologists. They're both getting, you know, just um, radiation and chemo, different things for weeks at a time. But I know what helped her greatly was talking to this guy who had cancer. He beat cancer and was diagnosed with cancer a year later. The whole time he's just talking about Jesus, looking to Jesus, posting on his Facebook about Jesus. And I, I'm watching this interaction. Like, I know it's Facebook. It's 2019, right? But I'm watching this interaction between him about encouraging others and her with his cancer and his cancer story. And it's encouraging her and her cancer story. It's given her hope and peace that I haven't seen before. A peace that is very unique. A peace that I don't know, if, like in this moment, like, would I have that? I see God give her strength in that moment. I mean, it's so cool to see someone who suffers well and encourages others who are suffering. Listen, suffer well. Paul suffered well. It emboldened others to go out. There's something about someone who takes a step of faith or suffers well where it advances the gospel. Guys, I have no idea what you're going through, but people are looking and people are watching whether or not you see that. And I'm telling you, you have a moment to either have fear, to have fear overcome you and you do nothing, or you can have opportunity to show faith and that will spread. That will spread like fire. I'd say show faith in that moment. Paul's suffering it emboldened others. Number three is this. Uh, it's worth it if Christ is preached. So yes, the gospel's been furthered, but now he's like, I'm just happy Christ's name is getting out there. Look at verse 15. All right, Philippians 1 verse 15. He says, some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife and some from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. This is so interesting to me. Good news, bad news. Good news, Christ is being preached. Bad news, they have bad motives. But for Paul, it's all good news. He's like, either way, Christ is being preached. Now, I don't fully get this. Let me just kind of explain something. Um, they're not, these people here are not heretics. They're not preaching a false gospel. Paul was very, very clear about calling out people's preaching false gospel. Galatians 1.8. He's like, if anyone comes to you and preaches another Jesus, count him accursed. Paul is not calling them heretics here. He's saying they're preaching the, the true Jesus, the Jesus I preach, but just with mixed motives. Now, we know that. We still see that. I wonder what this looked like for him. I wonder if it's like, wow, Paul, 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 the church plant, like the apostle is in prison. Now's my chance, right? Let me make a name for myself. And whatever it was, whatever it looked like, you would think Paul would hear that and see the mixed motives and go, how dare you have mixed motives in preaching the gospel? God wants zeal. God wants holiness. Like you wonder how, but Paul's like, I'm just happy Christ is being preached. The centrality of, of the cross of Jesus' name getting out there was everything to Paul. You know, there's a verse in 1 Corinthians 4 that talks about at the end of the day, I, I can't judge your motives. You can't judge my motives. I can only look at the fruit. You can only look at the fruit. God knows the hearts. Paul says, each one's praise will come from God. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1 through 2. Each one's praise will come from God. God ultimately knows the motivation. But there's something about Paul where he looks on and says, I'm just happy Christ is being preached, even if it is with mixed motives. Even if it's with its broken motives. Christ is being preached. There's something I learned here. This, this part really challenged me. I think a lot of us might have this sense of zeal or holiness for God. We're like, I want to call out all those other people. And it's like, you know what? Christ is being preached. I feel like recently, like honestly, over the last five, five years, God's been doing this work in my heart where I feel like I used to just be like, the, you know, a prophet to the American church, right? Like, oh, let me tell you how church should be ran. And can I tell you in the last like five years, God's like, hey, I have a lot to learn from my Presbyterian friends, from my Anglican friends, from my Methodist friends. I have a lot to learn from them. They've done some great things for God. They're doing some great things for God. Who am I to say, well, they do this differently. That's wrong. You know what? Christ is being preached. Can we just talk about that? Christ is being preached. Should that not just bless our hearts and go, Christ is being preached there. The cross is being preached there. They're not my enemy. 
You know, I'll say this. I think that we, and I want to be careful too, and please don't misunderstand what I'm about to say, but sometimes Christians, we can get caught up in secondary issues that are important, but they're not the most important. There are things, topics of education, topics of politics, topics of whatever it might be, you fill in the blank. And, and they're important issues that the church should eventually address or discuss, but we make them the main thing. Sometimes I'll look at Facebook statuses or I'll look at, you know, you look at things, you go, do you care more about the gospel or this political bent? What do you care more about? What are you more for? It's sad to me when we make secondary issues the main thing. Paul is saying, I'm just happy that the gospel's central, that Jesus Christ is being preached, even if it's with mixed motives. It challenges me to say, let's just get back to that. Now, let me say this. The church should be involved in topics like abortion. I mean, I'm so thankful for William Wilberforce. I'm thankful for George Whitfield, for John Wesley, who got involved with slavery and says, no, this is not acceptable. The gospel tells me we're all made in the image of God. This must end. So thankful for guys who helped abolish slavery in the 1700s and 1800s and it spread. So thankful for that. But you know how they got to that point? It's because the gospel is central for them. I mean, they love the word. They cherish the word. They love the gospel. They're preaching the gospel. I mean, those guys were leading revivals. And through that came those social reform form things happening. My point is, let's not make those the main thing, but let that be a byproduct of those who are obsessed with the gospel of Jesus. Amen? If Christ is the focus, that will happen. If the, if the gospel is the focus, those things will happen. But it won't happen if, it's, if we're making that the focus or making that the main thing. We have to keep Jesus Christ, the message of the cross, of this death, burial, and resurrection central to everything. And through that, there will be social reform. But that cannot be the main thing. Please hear my heart on this, church. Paul's just saying, I'm just happy Christ is being preached. Even if they're messed up people with bad motives, even if they're doing it to spite me. Paul's like, some people are just trying to spite me. But you know what? Christ is being preached. There's a maturity there that I long for in that. That you're not claimed to have. But there's a maturity there that I long for in that. Say, so, oh God, let me have a heart of just Christ is being preached. It's not about me. It's not about my specific bent that I have. It's about Jesus Christ and him crucified. Amen? He's like, but Christ is being preached. He goes, in this I rejoice and yes, will rejoice. Christ is being preached. But here's what I see. This is the problem for us. I don't know if Christ is always being preached because we're stuck on some other issue. That's where I'd say, I want to even take a next step further and say, let, it get back, let us get back to Christ being preached. No more going round and round in circles on topics that are secondary. Can we just move forward and advance the gospel? Can we just move forward and have like-mindedness and say, we're going to reach the people for Jesus Christ? Can we just have that? You know, in, in, uh, in the essentials, unity, absolutely. In the non-essentials, charity. In the non-essentials, just grace in that. But in the essentials, that's what we stay focused on. Amen? He goes, I will rejoice in that and do rejoice. You know, there's a story of John Wesley and William, or George Whitfield. John Wesley and George Whitfield. Basically, there's are two guys who God used in powerful ways. To, they, they brought in the British uh, Great Awakening and the American Great Awakening, all right? Just they led huge revivals, William, uh, George Whitfield and John Wesley. Now, the thing is, if you look at this, they actually had different views on a lot of topics when it came to the Bible. They actually disagreed a lot. They disagreed a lot. And one day, John Wesley was asked, because they could see this. People could see this. They, he asked, they asked John Wesley, like the crowd, hey, John Wesley, do you think that um, George Whitfield's going to be in heaven? Or sorry, he said, do you think that you'll see George Whitfield in heaven? He goes, no, I do not think I'll see him there. They go, so you don't think he's saved? You don't think he's converted? This is what he said. So I'll put the quote up. He says, of course he's converted. He's, of course he's a converted man. But I do not expect to see him in heaven because he will be so close to the throne of God and I so far away that I'll not be able to see him. No, no, I love about that. The people knew there was like friction there between two major leaders in the church in this time. 
And so people wanted to, like, they want to draw out conflicts, right? People love to draw out conflicts. Like, do you think you'll see him in heaven? He's like, no. <gasps> I knew it. You hate him. It's like, no, he'll be so close to the throne, and I so far, because he's, what he's doing for God, I so honor. There's just something about Paul saying, but you know what? Christ is being preached. Let us at least be able to say that. Let us not get sidetracked with secondary things that we're no longer preaching Christ. Let us move on to the point where you say, but Christ is being preached. He goes, I will rejoice in this, and yes, I will rejoice in this. Let us be that church. Amen? Here's what I want to do. I want to read one verse to you, and we're going to spend some time just in worship, and, and even I'm just asking you to pray, because here's the verse. In light of this text, in light of just praying through this for our church, we're in South Florida. We're in America. It's different. Suffering might be different for us than it is for Paul. Maybe not, for, maybe not always, but there's a verse I think that we need to take to heart. Can I just throw this verse up here? It's Hebrews 13.3. The author says, Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. Paul said it elsewhere, if one part of the body suffers, we all suffer. You know, 90,000 Christians are martyred every year. 90,000. Different groups that study these things will still say 90,000 Christians, about a million uh, in a decade, are martyred for their faith in Jesus. So here's something. As we just end our time in prayer, or in worship and prayer, would you just be in prayer, one, I know we don't know, might not know their names, might not have a name in mind, but let's be in prayer for those who are in prison. I would say let's be in prayer for those who are suffering. There might be someone around you right now, and they might not be in chains, but they're in prison. They're in bondage. Jesus wants to set them free, but some people love their chains. So I'm going to ask that we just be in prayer for the Christians who are literally in prison, and would you be in prayer for someone around you and say, God, if they're in, if they're in chains, set them free. Jesus, set them free. Free from those addictions, free from their mental, their mindset, free from their patterns that are destructive, just set them free. So we're going to pray right now. The worship team is going to come back up. We're going to close with a couple announcements, but why don't you spend some time in prayer as we worship. Let's pray. Father, we do just want to remember and pray for those right now, our brothers and sisters, whether it's in Iran or North Korea or Yemen, those who are right now in chains for preaching the gospel. Jesus, we ask that wherever they are right now, God, that they'd be able to sing hymns to you, sing songs to you, praise you, God. That whether or not the chains physically fall off, those chains of bondage would fall off. God, for those in this room, I just ask that that truth be so real. It's in the midst of praising you, chains fall off so often. God, if anyone in here is in bondage right now to just sin, in bondage to addiction, to a lifestyle, God, those who say they're a believer in Jesus and yet they still do not repent or turn from sin. I ask they would right now in this moment, one, repent, two, praise you, that those chains would fall off, that Jesus whom you set free would truly be free indeed. We thank you, God. We're here to honor you now. As we honor you with our lips, we want to honor you more importantly with our hearts, with our lives. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen. I mean, let's just stand and worship.